Well, hello guys, thank you for being here today. Um, we have been um, meeting with groups of kids all month long to harvest their questions about God and the Bible. And we've all got questions about God and the Bible, and so I wanted to have you all here today. I wanted to hear your questions and, and kind of wrestle with those questions a little bit. So I'm so thankful that y'all are here. I just wanted to start by getting each of your names and ages. So if you could just please tell me your name and how old you are. I'm Gretchen and I'm 25. I'm Daniel and I'm 29. I'm Chuck and I'm 61. I'm Kathy and I'm 60. I'm Ben and I'm 29. I'm Sarah and I'm 35. I'm Tanya and I'm 486 months. <laughs> and thank you for being here, Mom and Dad. Good to be here. Gretchen, um, I assume you believe in God. Is that 100% belief? It's, it's mostly. It's yeah. almost 100%. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just some days you, you feel more in tune with it, some days you don't. Um, I lost my faith completely when I was about 18 or 19. And it's been about a 10-year journey ever since then, coming back to it. I think I've arrived somewhere at a more mystical stance at the moment. Um, but most days I do believe... There are struggles, mm -hmm. and you hit walls, and you can't possibly understand. I know for me, growing up in church, people would tell you, just pray. Just pray and God will fix it. Yeah. So it almost felt more like a formula mm -hmm. that if you put something in, God is going to give it right back to you. And you get to college and your world falls apart and you go, wait, <laughs> this is not what I expected. You know, I have a lot of friends who I want to bring to the faith and I want to help them find faith. Um, but I, th I think it was in Colossians that says that, you know, God finds you. You don't necessarily find God. And so how is it, how is it that he's going to come find you and you can't do anything to bring yourself to the faith? Yeah, so is it all a, a predetermined right. chess match that we have no real free will in and God mm -hmm. chooses us before he makes us and right. doesn't choose some of us before right. he makes us? It's troubling, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about you, Daniel? Any questions that keep you up at night? Yeah. How does science inform our faith? Um, how does science and the Bible fit together? Sometimes that can be an issue. Can the LGBTQ lifestyle be reconciled with biblical teaching? That's a big issue. Violence in the Old Testament that God seems to not only condone but command. Yeah, there's, there's issues. Yeah, you yeah, got those loaded up and ready, man. That's a lot. <laughs> Are faithful Muslims condemned to hell? If we take that approach from Scripture, then we're saying basically God has condemned two-thirds of the world's population to eternal damnation. I just don't, that doesn't match with the God I see in Christ and how he walked and lived on the earth. Mom, is there any uh, question that, that stuck with you? Why Christianity over other religions or why Christianity at all when you see so many Christians behaving badly I totally understand why some people run from Christianity. Mm. Well, thank you guys for spending all this time with me and for sharing your questions. It's important that we do this because just like with the kids who shared their questions in July, all month long in August, we're going to be talking about the questions adults have. And it's not like when we grow up, we figure it out. If anything, we grow up and we have more questions than we had when we were kids. Asking questions is not a sin. Having doubts is not a sin. Um, when we just get stagnant in those doubts, then we can lose our way. But if we're asking those questions, God will meet us there. So uh, one thing the kids did for me is they gave me a lot of uh, compliments. And I really appreciated that. I've missed that in this conversation. Uh, I guess we lose our generosity gift when we grow up or something. Um, but they really liked my hair. You guys, you guys like my hair? Hair like they did? You look like Stephen Colbert got a little drunk yeah. one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo 
make sure I heard this right. I look like Stephen Colbert got drunk one day. He just kind of. Yeah. So uh, instead of just continuing down this, trail, I'd like to go ahead and say thank you for being here today. And uh, just for the record, the kids were much nicer than the adults. So <laughs> thank y'all for being a part of this. fun uh believe me there is an outtake reel from that from that <laughs> that you would not believe uh <laughs> we had a good time we had a good time i'll take stephen colbert drunk stephen colbert i'll take that uh that's that's okay with me you could do a lot worse i think uh in terms of uh looks and appearance and that that works we, we'll have another one of those videos the next couple of weeks um where uh, we explore different questions because that's what this series is um we're we're sort of piggybacking on to the July series where we talked about the questions children ask about God and the Bible. And now we're, we're saying, what, what questions are, are adults asking? And some of these questions aren't that different, right? Like a lot of these questions are the same, but they just sound different when adults ask them. But, but a lot of the issues are the same. Um, like many of your friends, I'm sure, maybe, maybe you as well, um, struggle with questions about the afterlife, for example. That's one of the most common questions. We're going to talk about that today. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking about, you know, why Christianity versus other religions and, you know, issue, like gender issues, men and women. Like why have women been, uh, their voice been suppressed within the Christian tradition um, seemingly and, and, uh, and things like that. And so uh, it's going to be a fascinating series. I hope you'll keep coming back throughout August. And if, if you can't be here in person, uh, join us uh, online as always at, at thestory.church or on Facebook. So we're going to dig into this uh, hell and heaven question today. So buckle up. This is going to be quite a ride. We're going to cover a lot of ground because when it comes to the afterlife, we all have questions, but we all talk as if we know what we're talking about. So we all, I think it's because it's so serious a topic that we base our belief systems on what we feel on the matter. So we base it on our emotions or our feelings or what we want to be true, which is kind of a natural thing to do because, you know, it's coming for all of us. Like, you know, I don't want to be morbid here, but have y'all seen the numbers on the death rate in America? It's still at 100%. Like, it's going to be us one day. You realize that. And so I think that combined with the fact that we've all lost loved ones and we want to think that they're in paradise at peace or, or whatever, that we conceive of deep, philosophical ideas, but we solely base those on a hunch or on a feeling, uh, an emotion. And so a lot of the time, what we say about heaven and hell is, it, it sounds like platitudes. It sounds nonsensical. Like it's not based in anything factual or truthful. And it's not, an, it's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's awful. It's, it's not a bad thing, but I think it would help if we really listened to ourselves and each other and things that are being said in our culture about heaven and hell and, and try to figure out what, what is actually true rather than what we would just like to be true. See what I'm, you see why that's important? Like if we just talk about it in terms of what we hope is true, then it's just the kind of Nietzschean kind of wishful thinking, the wish fulfillment of Freud or like the, the idea that, that we're just here avoiding our own mortality, that kind of thing. It's a coping mechanism, religion, you know. But I think there's more to it. I know there is if we will put our minds to it and search for truth instead of just for what feels 
good or what feels right. So that's what we're going to do a little bit today. Uh, there's some evidence of what I'm talking about in culture. I mean, there's um, like a recent uh, book that was, that was put out by uh, Mariah, uh, Maria Shriver, who is, she's a fine human being. I'm not here to, to back on her, but she wrote a book called What is Heaven for Children? And what she wrote in that book kind of summarizes what I hear many people today, adults, saying about heaven. But just listen to what she says and, and what it really would mean. She says, what is heaven? It is somewhere you believe in. It is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. Like, am I being a jerk here or does that sound like ridiculous? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, this is why educated people become agnostics. This kind of thing, like, they can't align themselves with this kind of belief system because it sounds like a fairy tale. You sit on clouds. You can't sit on clouds. You'll fall through them, you know? Like, there's, they don't, you're not that buoyant. You can't just sit on, a, a, you know, a mist cloud. Like, that's, that doesn't happen. And so that kind of thinking often drives people away when we boil it down to, to such terms. When I was uh, in my office this morning preparing for uh, the sermon and everything, my, my daughter got up from bed and she came in and, and gave me a hug and all that. And, and she said, what are you talking about today, Daddy? And I said, I'm talking about heaven and hell. Is there anything you think I should say? And she said, no. And I said, well, who do you think's going to hell? I don't know why I asked my daughter that. But I said, who do you think's going to hell? And she, and she said, well, bad people go to hell. And I said, but wait, mommy said that one time that, that I'm a bad person. And am I going to go to hell? And she said, no, no, you're not going to hell, daddy. You're a good person. I said, well, was mommy lying? She was lying, she said. I said, well, that make mommy a liar. It's liars are bad people. Is mommy going to hell? And, and you can see how the wheels were turning in her head, like, oh my gosh. Uh, but, but if it's people who are good all their lives who go to heaven, then we're all in trouble, are we not? Like, that's not what the Bible actually says, it's not what any of us should really believe, but that's the stuff we say, those kinds of platitudes, right? So a recent study in, uh, of Americans said that three-fourths of Americans believe in heaven. And of that number, of those three-fourths of Americans, three-fourths of those people believe they're definitely going to heaven, which is interesting, because <laughs> I live in America. Anyway, so they... <laughs> The other part of this is that almost as many Americans believe in hell. Not quite as many, but three-fifths of Americans believe in hell. But of those three-fifths, only 2% believe they're going there. So do you see the disconnect? Like three-fourths of Americans believe in heaven. Three-fourths of those people say, I'm going there. Three-fifths of Americans believe in hell, but only 2% of those people say, that's for me. And so that's kind of where you get, that's kind of where you get this disconnect between what we feel and what is true. Okay. Uh, so one more little statistic that I just kind of threw in here from that same study is that only 30% of Americans believe people are given a chance to be saved post-mortem. So that's another sort of a feeling thing or sort of a trope that has taken hold in our culture. I'm not really sure where it comes from. I don't think it's definitely scriptural. I think it just came from somewhere. I think it came from religion probably that said you better make your right decision before you breathe your last breath on this life or you're doomed or whatever. Um, we, we did an episode of the Maybe God podcast this week about near-death experiences and, and we're, we're gonna release part two of that this week. And um, those experiences combined with some things in the Bible would maybe lead me to believe otherwise. Uh, that, that maybe we're not doomed if we're not entirely saved before we leave this life and this earth. Anyway, um, the, 
the, these ideas, I think, um, speak to the greater sense of confusion that exists around heaven and hell. There's this clip from one of my favorite TV shows, Modern Family, um, that involves uh, Jay, who is the stepdad to Manny, um, and they are going golfing on a Sunday morning, even though Gloria, who is Jay's wife and Manny's mother, said they better go to church on a Sunday morning or God's going to get them. And yet they went golfing anyway, but, and Jay's fine with it, but Manny is wrestling with this guilt of not being in church on a Sunday morning, and he grills Jay about um, the consequences of such a decision. And listen for the confusion about heaven and hell in this clip. You know, Mitchell used to caddy for me. Of course, he spent most of his time chasing butterflies. You won't catch me doing that. Good for you. I'm terrified of them. Huh. Look at that. That's a perfect shot. And I hit that with a bent club. So you're not worried about getting in trouble? You know, with God? Oh, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. So you're not worried about hell? Let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. Seriously? No hell? That's fantastic! So everyone just goes to heaven? Yep. End of story. Even bad people? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in another section, see? They got this thing figured out. Can I hit this? Damn it. You distracted me. I didn't say anything. I could hear you thinking. I'm thinking about this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. Not full, the tiniest fraction. They're walled in. What if they break out? They're surrounded by a lake of fire. There are fiery lakes in heaven? This is turning into hell. Tell me about it. I just don't understand this bad section of heaven. What if they send you to the wrong place? They make mistakes with paperwork sometimes. I was put in a girl's health class last year and had to watch a very disturbing movie. Calm down. Instead of thinking all morning about what heaven's going to look like, what it's not going to look like, who's where, if there even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven. I don't know. You seem pretty sure of yourself this morning. So what happens after you die? There's just nothing? Look. You're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? A hunch? Yeah, I don't freak out on me here, kid. You're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. Listen. Man, he said, you're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So um, those are the kinds of things we get confused about when it comes to heaven and hell in, in popular culture and our, our day-to-day conversations. And I think... Many people have gotten the impression that the Christian doctrine of the afterlife is really confusing. Like the Bible verses are contradictory of themselves, of each other, right? And so we can't really know for sure, so we just kind of need to come up with our favorite plan and then fit the Bible into that. Listen, um, what the Bible actually says and the Christian doctrine of the afterlife is actually not confusing at all. It's actually pretty clear if you, if you understand it on the face of it. But what is confusing is if you try... Uh, and, and go at the Bible with your preconceived notions or your feelings-based ideas of what you hope is true about the afterlife, and then you pick and choose parts of the Bible that fit into that and ignore the rest. That's what's confusing. That gets exhausting. Eventually, you'll wind up an agnostic because you'll hit a wall and realize your feelings-based ideas, are, your preconceived notions are indefensible, biblically speaking, and so you can't really call yourself a Christian. 
anymore. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. There are, there are many people I know who like to, you know, they think of themselves as Christians. They are Christians, whatever, but, but they, they uh, don't believe that hell can possibly be eternally real. Like a, a loving God would never send anyone to hell forever. How can you reconcile the idea of a loving God with, with anyone ending up in hell forever? That can't be. And so they say, you know, uh, then a loving God would have everyone in heaven with him, whether or not they want it. You know, they're going to end up in heaven with him. And so what they'll do is ignore all the rest of the Bible, but, but hone in on a verse like uh, what Paul wrote to, first, uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy where, uh, chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, where he said uh, that it is God's will that all people would come to him, that all people would come to knowledge of the truth because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so you, you focus on that, you forget about all the other verses in the Bible, but this is, this is, your, this is your life verse, your memory verse, this one, right? Because you're building your whole life around this thing because you hoped it before you even came to the Bible. Now, there's other people who come at this completely differently, and they're totally fine with a whole bunch of people ending up in hell. They don't even feel bad about it. Like, some Christians come at this, and they go, it's fine that there's an eternal hell as long as Christians are the ones who don't go there. So all the Christians are in heaven. Everybody else is in hell. And so they will come at the Bible with that feeling, that desire, and they will choose to ignore all the other verses to the contrary. And they will rely instead on their narrow interpretation of what Jesus said. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 6, where he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many of you have ever heard a Christian use that in a combative way? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Right? Like, like it is narrowly interpreted, religiously interpreted, to say that if you don't join the First Baptist Church of wherever you're living before you die, <laughs> like, you're a toast, you know, that kind of thing. And, and some people cling to that idea because that's what they wanted to be true before they ever went to the Bible, right? And there are, there are some people who are cool with a heaven and a hell, but they don't like the religious lines. So they don't want to say that it matters that you come to Jesus. And so they will ignore all the stuff that says every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all that kind of stuff. They're like, nah, that stuff, it was just true at its time. It's not, you know, they'll explain it away. The actual Greek says, you know, whatever, like they'll explain that stuff away and they'll cling to verses like, Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that from the beginning of creation, God could be known through nature. His qualities, his invisible qualities have been clearly seen. So regardless of what religion you claim, regardless of where you're from, when you live, whatever, like you can get into heaven with or without a confession or knowledge of Jesus, right? And so you'll cling to that passage and lose all the rest. Listen, that game is exhausting. That game will, will hit a wall. Eventually, you will wind up wondering if you can believe any of this stuff because the Bible is not what you want it to be. But the Bible itself, the Bible itself is pretty clear about what heaven and hell will be and what we can expect in the afterlife. There's four things I think that the Bible say very clearly beyond a doubt. And the first one is that heaven and hell are eternal realities. Both heaven and hell are eternal realities. Realities. There's no question biblically that that's the case being made in the, in the Christian worldview. Heaven and hell, both eternal realities. The second 
thing that I think is irrefutable, biblically speaking, is that we will all be surprised. Wherever you end up, wherever I end up, you will be surprised by who's with you. And so you might be surprised where you end up, but you'll definitely be surprised by who's with you. It was Mark Twain who said, you go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company. Um, And what he he was getting at is that in heaven, it's just going to be a bunch of boring old Christians, and in hell, it's going to be all the fun people. But the Bible indicates that it's going to be a mixed bag. Like some people that you thought were the best Christians are going to end up in hell, and some people that were the most fun, who you thought didn't have a snowball's chance and you know where, end up in heaven. Like, it's going to be shocking. Jesus' parables bear that out again and again that we'll be surprised. The third thing that's irrefutable, biblically speaking, is that heaven is more than just some cloud kingdom. It's more than just some spiritual paradise. You escape from this evil physical world and then you go live as a spirit being in the sky and talk to the people who are there or whatever Maria Shriver said. It's not just about that. In fact, we don't even know what heaven will be like in its fullness yet because it's still being built. It's still coming. Heaven is under construction, and we won't know heaven until the last day, the Bible says, when Jesus comes, and Jesus being, as, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus said, Jesus, uh, Paul said Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection, so Jesus rose as the first fruit of resurrection, meaning that the rest of us who are in him will rise one day too. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 saying that those who have already died are at rest with Jesus, They're at peace with Jesus. They are not in heaven in its fullness yet. They're at rest. They're at peace. They're they're, they're fine. If y'all are worried what I'm about to say, your, your loved ones are fine. Like that's what I'm saying. But they're at rest. They're in a waiting state until heaven comes in its completion. And heaven will not be a merely spiritual place. Heaven will be a new physical creation, a recreation untainted by the fall. And we will be given new bodies that are uncorrupted. So heaven is not an escape from the physical world. Heaven is a remaking of it that will come one day. Fourth and finally, the Bible is very clear that hell is not merely a torture chamber for non-Christians. We have made hell into a cartoon. From everything from Dante's Inferno to South Park. Like we've made it into a cartoon that no one really pays attention to because it's a caricature. It's men in red tights. Who's scared of men in red tights? No one. You know, like, but it's the pitchforks and the pointed tails and the horns and, you know, the chains and shackles and all that stuff. That's, that's a club in New York City. That's not hell. You know, like, that's, that, this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is silliness. But that's not really what the Bible says. I know there's some figurative language about the fires and and all of that, but but that is not really what the Bible says about hell. The Bible has uh, such a clearer idea of what uh, heaven and hell really are. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we we have done an episode recently on uh, the Maybe God podcast featuring John Burke, who's a pastor in Austin. I I went there with uh, Julie and Nathan to go and interview John Burke about his book, Imagine Heaven. And I wanted to share this little clip with you. It's a couple minutes long and it's just audio. So there's gonna be a picture of me up here with John. But other than that, it's just audio. So y'all gotta dial in. Your attention span is about to be really challenged. Um, So resist the urge to go to your screen. Just dial into what he's saying. Listen to his words about um, the, really the necessity of heaven and hell to understand the existence of a loving God. Check this out. I think the point is love. 
And that's, that's what God revealed to Moses. That's uh, what Jesus said, to love God is first, to love people. Uh, as much as we do ourselves is second, and that sums up the whole Bible. Yeah. And um, if that's true, though, we have to be free. We have to truly have a free will because you can't force love. You could put a gun to someone's head that you loved and say, love me. Right. And they could fake it, but we all know you can't force it. Yeah. And I think God created us to be able to love the creator, yeah, which means he doesn't force us. Mm. You know, um, I've talked to skeptics who will hear Christians say things like that, and they'll say, if a God really loves us, then why not alleviate suffering? And that, you know, that would make it easier for us to believe in him. That would make it easy for us to, to love him and be happy. Well, and that actually gets for me into some of what I wrote about in Imagine Heaven. I think the only way to explain it is if God knows there's actually something far, far better and far, far worse than what we experience here. When my daughter was five years old, I remember sitting on the couch one night and my wife had her on her shoulders and was walking through a doorway and my daughter reached up and grabbed the doorway and flipped over backwards, came down on her head in the tile and I heard the worst shriek I've ever heard in my life. It's just like, it tears me up even thinking about it. Well, it turns out she had subdural bleeding, which you can die from. If, if you have bleeding under the skull, it can pressure up the brain and, and kill you. So we had to take her to the hospital. They had to shoot her with dye to see what was going on. And that just terrified her. But the horrible part was the next day, they had to do it again. So to see if the bleeding had gone down and she saw them coming at her with the needles and she just starts thrashing about and, and screaming. And the doctor looked at me and said, dad, you're going to have to hold her down. Oh my gosh. I mean, I had to pin my little five-year-old daughter while she's screaming and said, daddy, don't let them hurt me. Don't let them hurt me. Why are you letting them hurt me? And she's crying and I'm crying because from her little five-year-old mind, why is daddy hurting her. But I knew that there's something much, much worse that could happen if I don't allow her to go through the short-term pain. Right. And there's something much, much better if she's healed, right? There's life ahead. Right. And one day she'll understand. I think only in light of heaven do we make sense of the sufferings and the pains and the trials and the evils of this world and why God would allow it for a time. So what he's um, saying here is that later he says this is a time of choosing. This life is a time of choosing. And because God is committed to the concept of love, there must be a choice. And so when we say that in our minds a loving God would never send someone to hell, what we're really saying is that a loving God would, would find a way to force or coerce or manipulate all of us to loving him back so that we can all go to heaven. That doesn't sound like love, does it? Because it's not. And so the notion of hell isn't contradictory to the idea of a loving God. In fact, it is it's essential to the concept of a loving God. And, and I think um, the, the point of hell, unlike what you might have heard, unfortunately, in churches, the point of hell isn't to punish your past. 
Hear me when I say, the point of hell is not to bring punishment or wrath down for the things you did in the past. That's the image we've given people of hell, that you pay the price for all the stuff you did in the past. Listen, the gospel couldn't be clearer in this. The New Testament could not be clearer in that every sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Every wrong has been made right. Everyone has already been forgiven. Every debt has already been paid. But if you don't live as though it's been paid, you will self-condemn. If you don't receive the forgiveness, you will convict yourself. Right? And so you live with this guilt and the shame that is all self-imposed. If you don't live in worshiping God as the center of your life. This is why worship is so important, y'all. This is why we, we push worship so much. And we put together these little videos and we, we put out calls on Facebook and we say, come and worship. Worship is the most important thing. It's not because, look at our church, how big we got. Oh my goodness, let's count everybody again. And that's not what it's about. I don't care about that stuff. Listen, I do care about that stuff. That's a lie. I'm a liar. I, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm already forgiven. So that's, that's. That's only a very small part of what we care about. The bigger picture here is that when we gather for worship, we are reminding ourselves of what matters. We're being reminded that even though we're distracted by a gazillion different things every day, school and work and popularity and relationships and everything else, that the thing that belongs at the center of life, the only person who deserves to a song that we sing, the only person to whom we should bend the knee is God and no one else and nothing else. That's why we worship. Because when we do that, we center ourselves around his love. His light is the source of our being. It's the reason we exist. And so we begin to reflect that to the world around us. And so when we say that hell isn't punishment for your past, what is it? If it's not punishment for your past, the Bible says and suggests, as well as John Burke in the podcast, the Bible suggests that hell is an amplification of your present. It is a multiplication, a magnification of who you already are becoming in this life, but not for 70 or 80 years, for eternity. And so when we talk about worshiping anything else other than God, which you will do because everybody worships, everybody worships, and if you worship anything other than God, that is by definition idolatry, or another way of looking at it is addiction. And what I mean with that is if you worship anything other than that which is truly worthy of worship, you will not find satisfaction in that thing. And whatever the object of that worship is becomes your addiction. And the problem with addiction is that what you had yesterday that satisfied you will not satisfy you today. And what satisfies you today will not satisfy you tomorrow. You will constantly need more of that thing. And so the Bible raises the very poignant question of what does that idol worship or that addiction look like forever? You've seen how it wears down an alcoholic or a drug addict, or a sex addict, or the things we taboo in our culture, right? But what happens to us when we worship something other than God forever? So hell isn't a punishment for your past, praise Jesus. That's taken care of. Hell is a 
magnification of your present state of mind. So let me just flesh this out for you. It doesn't have to be something that you build a shrine to at home, right? It doesn't have to be where you go to worship on Sunday morning, worship a false god or whatever. Like That's not it. Listen, most of us worship something like our appearance. Like that is what we revolve around. That is the source of our importance is how other people see us. And so whether we're beautiful enough or more beautiful or more muscled or whatever than the people around us, what we see in the mirror every day is what we worship. And so an attachment to that, an addiction to that might look like in eternity, you know, progressively um, aging. Every day you look in the mirror, you see more blemishes, more wrinkles, and you're running out of those creams with diamond specks in them to like make it go away. Like nothing helps and there's no amount of Botox or injections or lip things or whatever people do that can bring back your beauty forever. That consciousness continues It is self-imposed torment. You can see how that would also work with money or uh, sex or, you know, prejudice. Like some people wrap their whole life around some prejudice. And this is true of people on the right and people on the left, you know. People on the right love to hate certain groups of people and maybe their hell will look like those groups of people doing better than they are forever. Some people love to hate our president right now. And for them, like, the idea of waking up to a headline that's positive about this president. Maybe their hell looks like, you know, Trump is reigning over the best economy we've ever had. Like, forever. You know, like, can you imagine that person? For, you know what I mean? Like, it would just eat him alive. It would eat him alive. And that would be a, a kind of hell for them. And the point is, uh, that's possible for all of us. So... Even though we've used hell as a weapon in the church, unfortunately, we've gotten to the point where we're, it's, it's a cartoon. The truth is that it's a very simple reality that we could all uh, be uh, subject to. That, I think, is why Paul wrote in Romans 6, he said, the wages of sin is death. I think part of the reason that he wrote it this way is to give grammar nerds a little taste of hell uh, because <laughs> wages is plural and is is a singular verb. It should be the wages of sin are death. But y'all know those people who correct every one of your Facebook posts? Uh, that's their fixation, right? Paul's telling them there is a syntax for syntax. <laughs> tough. That's a tough crowd right there, but that was a good joke. So... Uh, <laughs> Thank you, thank you. So, uh, the wages of sin is death. Now, I thought what was past is past, but if, if you haven't received or accepted the payment of that sin, it's, in your mind, still owed. You're still behind. You're still in debt. But that's not the end of the story. It's not even the end of this verse. Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Listen. When you repent of those sins, when you repent of those idols you've been worshiping, that thing, that idea, that person that you've bent the knee to, when you repent and turn away from it and turn your face toward the one true God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the other side of what I said earlier, the really dark notion that, that, that hell is uh, an amplification of your current state of being, is that heaven is too. 
And if you live your life revolving around the love of God, if you cherish every moment you have in God's presence, if you look forward to every single time that you feel enveloped in the love of God, like when you look up at the sky at night or when you look over a canyon or when you hold a baby or when you hug someone or when you just feel at random, even in traffic or wherever, you feel suddenly overcome by the love of God, those moments will be amplified. That assurance, that joy, the peace that comes over you in those moments will be amplified not just for 60, 70, 80 years, but forever. And you will witness the fullness of God's love, the love he created you to know for eternity. Now listen, I do believe that the will of God is that all his daughters and all his sons would know him and would choose him, and would love him. I think that's the purpose of it all, is love. And I think he wants you to know him, and to choose him, and to love him. But he will not manipulate you for it. He refuses to coerce you for it. And he darn well will not, will not force you for it. But he waits patiently, like a father full of love for his child who's turned away for a time. He waits for you to come home, to love him, to be loved by him, to know your purpose and find it in him, not just in this life, but forever. In a moment, um, we're going to have a baptism that we've been planning for, um, and, and then we'll have communion. And after uh, communion, or during communion, I'm going to be standing by the baptism water here. And if you feel as if God has been tugging at your heart, getting your attention, turning you away from those idols you've bent the knee to, and today is a day to commit your life for the first time to God or to recommit your life after a season of wandering away. Don't let the moment pass. Moments like this, it's what you were created for. So embrace it. And know that this love you feel in this moment will only be amplified in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your wisdom and your light that shines through today. I pray for the courage for all of us to receive these promises. For all of us to beware the dangers of our own idolatry and the ways that we worship things that, and people that don't deserve it. God, wake us up if we are deep in the depths of, um, of that state of mind. Wake us up to a new reality today and give us the courage to stand and turn against those idols and toward you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.